few weeks after the January 6th insurrection at the United States Capitol, Rabbi Ariel Berger met with members of the Witness Institute. Rabbi Berger studied with author, professor, and Nobel laureate Elie Wiesel, and they formed the Institute to help high potential leaders influence their communities to help build a loving and more moral world. The participants that morning shared feelings of fear confusion, righteousness, and anger, it was clear that even within the group, there was a lot of political diversity. During their meeting, the discussions had become heated. There was no consensus or resolution falling into place as he had hoped. Rabbi Berger was shaken, and he was unsure of what to do. He had four minutes to wrap up their time together. Nothing felt right. In fact, things felt very wrong. He stepped up to the podium and he surprised them all by asking them to join him in song. He taught them a simple Hasidic melody, wordless but beautiful. As their voices blended together, the whole mood shifted. The tensions in the room evaporated. The members of the Institute reported that even though they held to different ideas, singing together reminded them that they were one. Rabbi Berger recalled his teacher, Rabbi Nachman, had told him once that when two people are talking at the same time, it is cacophony. But when two people sing together, it's harmony. I've been rolling this sermon around in my head for over a year now, and maybe you found the title alarming. I kept thinking I should call it something a little bit less aggressive, but every time I talked with anyone about it, they said, oh no, you have to call it that, because that's exactly how I feel. If you've read any polls about our country, the word you hear the most is division. We have become a divided nation. I feel it, I've been angry, I've been frustrated, and I feel like I'm losing hope for our country our communities, and God forbid, even some of my own family members. I've been wrestling with how I can walk with integrity within all of this. And I confess sometimes it feels like I can't. So I stand before you this morning trying to sort this out. I wouldn't be too surprised if many of you are feeling similarly, a bit lost, a little scared, and unsure of which way to go. Truthfully, I feel like I live in a UU cocoon. My social media sends me stories about the other side that only help to fuel my disdain and support of my own leanings. My friends and colleagues join me in articles and actions seeking similar outcomes. But then after something like the insurrection, or people denying science, or our racist history, or our government making decisions about women's reproductive health, or people saying they're pro-life and then doing nothing to protect our children from gun violence. I gotta confess, I feel like I'm at the end of my rope. I'm an ordained minister for God's sakes. If I'm struggling, no wonder the rest of the country is ready to throw in the towel. Reverend Nadia Boltz Weber says, I do not think our psyches were developed to hold and feel and respond to everything coming at us right now, every tragedy, injustice, sorrow, and natural disaster that's happening across the planet 
in real time every minute of every day. Before technology allowed us to hold the world in our hand, before television invaded almost every space imaginable, the human heart and spirit were able to hold and respond to tragedy that happened in our village. She says she feels like her emotional circuit breaker keeps overloading because the hardware for it was built for an older time. It feels about right that my circuit breakers are overloaded. Dr. Amy Arnston, a professor of neuroscience and psychology at Yale Medical School, says that when we are bombarded with all of these things, we lose the very circuits that allow us to self-regulate, to be rational, and in many ways, how not to be irritable. I want to offer love and compassion to the other, to the stranger, to my neighbor, but I confess the patience and compassion I used to have has thinned mightily. I feel this close to wanting to punch some people in the face sometimes. But of course, I don't. I know that's not a solution, and trust me, I am not advocating for that. But I confess I used to have more layers of compassion and patience. It took a lot to make me feel the anger and the unrest that is so close to the surface for me now. A friend of mine, when feeling overwhelmed and unable to cope, would say, my give-a-damn just got broke. <laughs> and I get that these days. In this past year, due to vaccines and boosters, I've re reconnected with friends and groups that I had not physically seen in the previous year. Within these groups, I found myself having a lot of the same conversations as we got together. Maybe you found this too. Conversations centered around our disbelief of the other side. And I realized there was a certain pleasure to these conversations. When I got together with other like-minded people, we would marvel about the stupidity of the other, how ridiculous and selfish and thoughtless they were. In turn, it reaffirmed our own choices and made us feel better about who we were. But after a while, I began to realize how stupid, ridiculous, selfish and thoughtless I had now become when I reveled in that kind of behavior. In her book, Atlas of the Heart, Dr. Brene Brown gives us a deeper language for understanding our feelings and emotions. She believes the words we choose have power. Language can be used to strip people of their dignity and humanity. She warns that both sides of the aisle are now using language that is dehumanizing. When I read these words, I saw myself. When I read these words, I was shocked to realize that I and my friends were using words to de dehumanize the other. Brene Brown says that it seems the only thing that binds us together now is shared fear and disdain, not common humanity, not shared trust or love, Acknowledging this behavior with him and myself feels awful. I wonder if you've had those thoughts too. I'm better than that. You are better than that. As a denomination, we are better than that. But in these divided times, is it even possible to find our way back to one another? 
with a very deep breath and with my mind filled with a hundred reasons why we can't, the truth is that we can. And to be honest, we simply must. So where do we start? First and foremost, I think we start in the way that we want to be seen and we want to be treated. We want to be heard and respected for our beliefs and thoughts. So if this is true, then we must also offer the same to the other. The wise and wonderful Ellie Wiesel said, we should never let anyone be humiliated in our presence. This makes me reflect on our first Unitarian Universalist principle that we believe in the inherent worth and dignity of every person. And I confess that's been a hard one for me lately. Does this mean I have to believe in the worth and dignity of someone who denies science that believes in unfounded conspiracy theories? Our second principle says, we believe in justice, equality, and compassion. Compassion in all human relations. All human relations. Not just people we like. That's a hard one too. Am I supposed to feel compassion for those who I feel are acting unethically? Our third principle says we believe in a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, even if someone else's truth and meaning is different than our own. Let's be honest, as Unitarian Universalists, we should especially embrace someone whose truth and meaning is different from ours. Because isn't that why we gathered and formed this faith association in the first place? because we felt outside of the teachings and beliefs of leaders and members of century-old religious institutions. If we look back into our history, we find martyrs who were killed for believing something so opposed by the majority of society. Unitarians doubted the Trinitarian structure of God that was created by Constantine and the Council of Nicaea. Universalists believed everyone would be saved those two thoughts were once heresy, and for many faith traditions, today they still are. And yet we sit here today holding those ideas as part of our faith story. Our denomination was on the forefront of allowing women to be ordained and speak from the pulpit decades before other denominations did, and many still don't. Our denomination was one of the first to ordain and openly welcome LGBTQ ministers and congregants, recognizing the importance and holiness of their lives and their words. We should be good at this. We should be leaders in accepting the other. But I stand before you right now as proof that it's still very, very hard to do. Rabbi Ariel Berger says there's two challenges as we face the other. One is that we fall into the trap of simply not listening to them. And then second, we believe we are over-familiar with the other. We think we already know them. I'm guilty of this. When I hear that someone supported certain candidates or policies, I feel an emotional wall go up inside myself. I wouldn't humiliate them. But I admit, I feel myself mentally walking away from them as they speak. I fall into that trap of believing that I already know them. And truthfully, 
feels challenging to me to think that some folks right here in this room might disagree with some of my thoughts. But the reality is, they already are. You and I, we can't know everything everyone thinks or embraces. Admit it, we all select bits and pieces of both sides of the aisle to create our own way of being and understanding the world. Nothing is ever just black or white. Or better yet, no one is just blue or red. And outside these four walls, how many of us have members of our own family who hold the things we dare not embrace? Let me see a show of hands. For those of you at home, almost everyone raised their hands. I have a family member who I love that allows conservative media to influence his thoughts and drive his choices. And I find it a bit scary and irrational. And I feel he holds to things that press up against my desire for a loving and caring society. It's hard to be around him. Like John Pavlovich said in our earlier reading, it feels like a living death, like a relationship funeral. In the podcast on being with Krista Tippett, she and Rabbi Berger explored how we can bring our hearts, our hands, and our feet into all of this division and see it as an opportunity for learning and renewal, where we can really encounter something that will change us. But do we want that? Are we open to that? I think hearing that we need to change may be the hardest thing to grasp. How can we change? Rabbi Berger says we do it by practicing deep listening and deep respect. He invites us not to shut down or run away when we encounter someone who disagrees with us, but instead to make room for them, to not turn away but to make room for them. He believes there's something sacred in their position, that there's something for us to learn in that position without collapsing all of our thoughts and our, into our own preconceived stereotypical thoughts of what we think they believe or stand for. It's got me thinking about asking deeper questions of the other. Instead of attacking the other's politics, it got me to wondering what may have happened over time for them that has made them find meaning in their current ideas. Have I ever asked that? Truth be told, I never had. What would happen if I paused and asked deeper questions? For me, this approach opens us up more to love and less to anger and defensiveness. Rabbi Berger points out that in a health, healthy relationship, our job is less to transform the other than to attend to ourselves. Elie Wiesel said past wrongs could be tools of education rather than tools of humiliation for all of us, not just for those who we think have it wrong. And this comes from a man who survived the Holocaust. Past wrongs could be tools of education rather than tools of humiliation. Yikes. Those words hit close to home, don't they? How often as parents or partners have we lifted up past mistakes or as a way to shame or humiliate even our loved ones? 
How often do we lift up the mistakes of the other side's politicians as they drag out the mistakes of ours? We do it all the time. Rabbi Berger invites us to take a look at the very first relationship that we've heard stories about, Adam and Eve. The Bible says Eve was created from Adam to be a help meet for him. In the Hebrew translation, it is not help mate. It is help meet, which is actually a very different word. Help, of course, meaning helper, but meet means one who is against him. Rabbi Berger says, to understand this idea of otherness, one of the best things you can do for me, one of the best ways you can help me in my own search for truth is to confront me with your different perspective, your different opinion, your different take on things. And yet in these troubling times, we've stopped doing that. It's like we do not want to even open the door for another perspective anymore. We've already decided that I am right and you are wrong. So holding all this, I went to talk with my family member, the one I find myself distancing from. I decided to really listen and not let stereotypical thoughts color my thinking. I remained quiet and I just listened. I heard a lot about fear, fear about being in a world that no longer made sense to him. And I thought, I feel that way too. I heard a lot about losses and feelings of being labeled an enemy in a country that he loves. I heard common sense worries about fiscal responsibility and worries about folks who manipulate the system. I heard about feeling disregarded. And then once he had released how the pain of those things felt, the discussion suddenly shifted. I began to hear about wishes for a better world, for good schools, jobs, and safe neighborhoods for everyone. I heard about a desire for all of us to treat one another with respect and how he understood that we really are all connected. I was surprised to hear wishes for some of the very things I wanted too from someone I thought was out to destroy them. Rabbi Berger says, the practice of never letting anyone be humiliated in your presence is a very powerful starting point. It means that not only should you not humiliate someone, but that you also cannot be indifferent. You can't be a bystander. You have now become a witness. I was a witness to my family member's pain and frustration. He was also a witness to my feelings. And in that act of witnessing, I found hope. In that act of witnessing, I found a renewal of faith in who we were to one another. But here's the catch. We can make space for the other, but we're not guaranteed that the other will make space for us. And hearing that, some of you may say, well, screw that. I deserve the same respect and offering, perhaps. But the truth is we can't change anyone. We can only change ourselves. And I don't know about you, but I am tired of being so angry. I want to feel hope again. I see now that if I, I see now that I need to change how I choose to be in this world. Author and teacher Suzanne Stabile asks us to consider what's mine to do and what's not mine to do? What's mine to say and what's not mine to say? And the third one she lifts up to me is even harder. 
What's mine to care about? And what's not mine to care about? She recognizes that our effectiveness in the world cannot extend to every single event or situation. It's not an issue of values. It's an issue of math. So she tries to remember, number one, we're still living through a global pandemic, and that means anxiety and grief are higher than ever. Number two, the world is on fire, literally and metaphorically. But three, we only have so much water in our own buckets to help with the fire. And if we have no water to fight, the more likely we will get burned. So she says she tries to tell herself that it's okay to focus on one or two fires. It's okay to do what is yours to do. Say what's yours to say. Care about what's yours to care about. For me, this focuses, focuses me on being intentional about how we choose to use our water. It can help us not to overload our circuits and gratefully we all have different interests. All of us here have different concerns that we're willing to use our water for. In this room, I know many of you use your bucket of water to help the environment. Others use their water to help the homeless or the hungry. And I know that there will be many of you wanting to use your water to help women have access to safe abortions if needed. Knowing this gives me hope. It does take a village. And in that village, we are not alone, but we are surrounded by people with their own buckets of water. Rabbi Berger says that hope is the first moral choice. It's the first thing that allows us to stay in the game and continue to do the work in our corner. But if we, get, uh, if we give up, if we get buried in this anger, and we continue to allow ourselves to dehumanize each other, it's over. But if instead we listened, deeply listened, and we provide witness to the pain and suffering the other is feeling too, then we could reimagine together. And it brings us back around to holding this truth, that when two people are talking at once, it is cacophony. But when two people sing together, it's harmony. Poet and writer Mark Nepo shares a scientific fact that when two living heart cells from two different people are placed into a petri dish, those cells in time will find and maintain a third and common beat. I've shared this before in my sermons and I do it again because I believe it to be so profound. He says that this biological fact holds the secret to all relationships. It is scientific proof that beneath any resistance that we may have, there is in the very nature of life itself an essential joining force. This force makes compassion possible, even probable. For if two cells can find a common pulse, how much more can two full hearts feel together when all of our excuses fall away? In this life, I believe we've been given the sacred tasks to make our hearts bigger, not smaller. If two different heart cells can find a third and common beat, so can we. May it be so.